Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is Why Black Teachers Matter, and I'm joined by Dr. Constance Lindsay, whose scholarship has focused on diversity in education. I'll start by letting her introduce herself further. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Constance Lindsay. I am an assistant professor of educational leadership in the School of Education at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Like Carla said, most of my work focuses on thinking about ways that we can leverage the teacher workforce to close racialized achievement gaps for Black students. All right. So, you know, I would like to start by talking about some of the data. There's a lot of information out there about race and income-based performance gaps and about how teacher identity and quality influences those gaps. Um, Can you let everyone know what the statistics are about performance? Sure. So this would be a great place to talk about a little bit about some of the work that I've done in this area. So my colleagues and I have published a few articles where we take uh, what researchers call administrative data from North Carolina, and we're able to track outcomes for students based on whether they had a same race teacher earlier in their uh, educational career. And so there's two uh, foundational studies that we've worked on that have really sort of pushed this particular area. Uh, The first looks at um, student discipline. So we know that there are huge discipline disparities between uh, black and white students. And we know that exclusionary discipline in particular is harmful for students because it takes them out of the classroom and it contributes to those stubbornly persistent achievement gaps that we see between black and white students. And so basically we find that um, if you have a Black teacher earlier in your career, your educational career, you're less likely to experience things like suspension, whether it's in school or out of school, detention and expulsion. And so a lot of the work that uh, exists out there sort of in addition to ours focuses on these short-term outcomes. So my colleagues and I came together and said, well, what does this matter for things like long-term outcomes? You know, things like uh, high school dropout. Uh, college attendance. And so basically we have another study where we look at the impacts, the longer run impacts of having a same race teacher. And we basically find that for young black men in particular, if you are matched to a same race teacher uh, in the early grades, you are 40% less likely to drop out of high school. Um, And uh, the number, uh, there's there's different versions of the study, but uh, there's a, a more refined version where we we sort of tweak the analyses a little bit and find that there's also a marginal um, additional impact from having two Black teachers um, in early in your educational career. So of all sort of the educational policies and practices that folks have been thinking about, um, we feel very strongly that um, getting Black teachers for Black students is a critical way to get rid of some of these gaps. You know, what's interesting, I saw a tweet go around and it feels like it goes around every so often. Um, And it talks about, you know, when did you have your first black teacher? Um, Mm -hmm. And I went to a predominantly black elementary school through third grade. So, you know, my first black teacher was like the first grade. And most of my teachers were, I'm trying to think it would be easier for me to count my non-black teachers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of people 
um, very successful people said, you know, I went all the way through school and never had a black teacher. Or, you know, the first black teacher I had was when I took African-American studies in college. Um, and so is that a common trend that people go all the way through school and do not have a black teacher? Yes. So that's a really good question. So there's sort of two ways to look at it. Right. So first, nationally, about 80 percent of teachers are white women, uh, about 8 percent of, of teachers are black and about 2 percent of black teachers are two percent of teachers are black men. So unless you're in a metro area, so you grew up in Houston, I grew up in D.C., uh, the likelihood that you're going to have a black teacher is very low. And something that I also found surprising in the North Carolina data in particular is that over half the black kids never had a black teacher. And so our results are really driving off of the kids who just happen to uh, get like an extra black teacher who probably wouldn't have had one. So there's a little bit of nuance to the discussion, but you'd be surprised that the teacher workforce is not very diverse. Um, and there's both sort of short and long-term implications to that. Now, how has your research, you know, kind of deviated from what people have done before? Because I've definitely heard the stats about the achievement gap. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some things that are like unique about what's in your book and about the, the data sets that you've come mm -hmm. up with. So I'd love for you to promote yourself and highlight what's in the book. Sure. So, so yes, yeah, so there's a couple of things. So definitely want to acknowledge the fact that there have been plenty of Black researchers who have written about Black teachers' lived experiences and done lots of excellent um, qualitative work that really uh, captures, you know, Black teachers' pedagogy, their strategies. Uh, what we were trying to do is do something a little bit different. Um, for one, these studies are quantitative studies where we're using many years of data, huge sample sizes. So for example, with the discipline paper, um, there's over 2 million data points, right? So we can, what's nice about a place like North Carolina is they make the student longitudinal data available for researchers to use. And so you can track students over very long periods of time uh, and have these really large sample sizes that allow us to uh, attempt to really assess whether um, having a Black teacher causes an outcome. And so that's a, that's a little bit of a difference in terms of what we try to do in our little education policy subfield is we're trying to rule out all other potential explanations as we sort of do our analyses. So that's that's one unique thing, but I definitely want to you know acknowledge that we're building on the work of, of many great <laughs> Black researchers um, uh, ahead of our work. But uh, it is the first, the, the long run study uh, in particular is the first study of its kind to look at that, look at things from a long run outcome. And so that uses data from both Tennessee and, um, and North Carolina. In terms of the book, the thing we're trying to do there, we're trying to do a few things in the book. Um, so the book is called Teacher Diversity and Student Success, Why Racial Representation Matters in the Classroom. And there we try to summarize all of this new literature that now people are able to do because we have access to these, these big, big, huge data sets. And then we're trying to sort of capitalize on this moment where everybody seems to be interested in teacher diversity across different, you know, um, across the political spectrum, well, to an extent. Um, <laughs> and pe people just really recognize the fact that, you know, we have a majority student of color, public school student body, and a not very diverse population that serves them, teaching population. And so we try to, you know, bring statistics to bear. We try to summarize the literature. But really the more, to me, the more interesting and provocative piece is we really want to push on this idea that teacher diversity is teacher quality. 
And so for the past 10 to 15 years, maybe even 20 years, um, the, the ed reform folks have been really obsessed with teacher quality with a very limited definition. And so the very limited definition usually is the ability to grow students' uh, outcomes on test scores. And we're saying that's too limited. It doesn't capture the true work of teaching, and it doesn't capture the fact that diverse teachers bring things to the classroom that also should be considered as a part of both their job duties and they should be compensated for it. So, for example, if you're a principal and you have a growing English language learner population and it comes down to two hires, we think that you know, you should consider hiring someone who is Spanish speaking or bring certain pedagogies into the classroom that are culturally responsive. And also that that person should be compensated for that because it's work. And so we're really trying to be very provocative about saying diversity is quality. Now, I'm not a lawyer like you, so we have <laughs> to leave the hiring stuff to the lawyers. But we really just want people to be more expansive in their definition of what uh, teacher quality means. Well, you know, as a professor and a lawyer, I enjoy the idea of being compensated for the diversity. Because, <laughs> um, um, you know, we all know, like, I could only imagine what it is like in elementary education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to be someone's first diverse teacher when often, you know, I have students who get all the way to law school and have never had a Black teacher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is definitely labor. Um, and it's it's unspoken work that is difficult to explain, um, which kind of gets me into my next question, you know. Some people seem to think, you know, we have this trend in law schools. We have, I'm sure y'all have this trend on undergraduate campuses. And I assume it is happening in elementary school campuses, which is the idea that you could train diversity into non-diverse people. The idea that you can train in cultural competency, um, you can fix your gap and address those issues by not hiring diverse professors or teachers or instructors, Mm -hmm. but by simply having some DEI training. Um, and has has your work looked at that at all and, and the impact of simply, you know, trying to train teachers to be culturally competent instead of diversifying the pool? That's a great question. So I think I have uh, I'm, I have a little double speak probably about this answer. So in the short term, we are not going to have the representation that we want. And so we do have to address the current ways that we train teachers for sure. Um, And I say that as somebody that works at a school of education. And so, yes, we for sure need to train all teachers in culturally responsive pedagogy and think about things like mindset interventions. And I'll come back to that in a second. Um, But the way I like to think about it is, you know, representation is a um, necessary but not sufficient piece of this. So we need the representation because some of our work also indicates that it is it's not the 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 impact of the black teacher is not solely due to a, like a role model effect, but that's a piece of it. I know that's kind of controversial, but there's something there we think. So you do need the representation, but then all teachers sort of need training to get to the social justice minded place we'd like for them to be. Uh, my with another different set of colleagues, we actually published a paper looking at an empathetic mindset intervention. And so not trying to get rid of bias amongst teachers, but helping them to sideline it. And so we actually found that if you if they participated in um, an online intervention, they were less likely to suspend um, black and disabled students in the next year. So I think 
so right. So though I am skeptical about some of these types of interventions, um, I think there is an opportunity there to train the existing workforce to do a little bit better by kids, right? Because the the flip sort of version of all this, you know, when we show that black teachers have these positive impacts, is that white teachers are not having good impacts on black students. And so we do have to address that at the same time as we're thinking about this representation piece. So that's a good question. Now, what things other than the role model effect um, are, are Black teachers giving to students? Yeah, that's that's good. So uh, so so one, it's it's the pedagogy piece, a culturally responsive pedagogy. There actually um, there's a really nice article that talks about uh, the training that HBCU teachers receive, mm-hmm. uh, because most of the times they're, they're training their candidates to serve in high needs and hard to staff schools. And so they're probably getting clinical experiences and other types of training that allows them to be responsive to the kids they're serving. Uh, my sense with usual student teaching placements is that they are done in places that aren't super diverse, where um, teaching candidates don't have the opportunity to interact with a broader set of children. And so I think there's something about the way that Black teachers are trained um, that allows them to you know, you know, respond basically to the, the types of students that they are more likely to encounter. And so I think there's that's definitely an area where, you know, a lot more research needs to be done. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something about responsiveness. It's something about um, higher expectations. My colleagues have a, a really nice paper that looks at Black, uh, that basically shows that Black teachers have much higher expectations for students than white teachers, for all students, actually. Um, but it's particularly uh, salient for Black students. And so I think there's a number of things around both, you know, pedagogy, strategies, mindset, the type of training that uh, lead to better outcomes for Black students. Yeah, that's all fascinating. It has me thinking about what we have happening in higher ed, because I mm-hmm. think, you know, we are getting these students who didn't get the exposure early. Um, And so I I can see the differences um, just thinking about my own students. All right. So what I would like to do now is dig a little deeper and talk more about the book and some of your policies Mm -hmm. proposals. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to start with the why. Um, You know, why are Black teachers or teachers of color in general so Mm -hmm. underrepresented? That's a great question. So so it depends on, on where you want to start your history. So if you want to start at Brown versus Board, right, you can think about the integration of schools being the integration of students and not of teachers. And so part of it was just simply you don't need two staffs in a school. And therefore, in a situation like that, Black teachers aren't going to get hired. Now, there's more... Um, straight up just racist (laughs) um, aspects to it, such as using um, biased licensing tests. You know, there were cases where um, Black principals who had formerly been principals were then demoted and hired as teachers. And so there were a lot of structural things that happened um, post-Brown that really decimated the Black workforce. So that's kind of the, the, the historical origin of it. And then over time, there's there's other um, there's other pieces to it. So if you think about the educator workforce is sort of happening on this continuum, you can basically think about um, the beginning of that continuum as being K twelve. 
So, you know, to the extent that we have these achievement gaps at the K-12 level, you're going to have them at the college level and you have to be a BA holder to be a teacher. And so in a sense, we just don't have the number of BA holders of color that we should have. And so uh, a piece of that is everybody's fighting over the same students. (laughs) So the law school people, the finance people, whomever. And so um, because the teaching profession is under a number of challenges, uh, we're going to lose <laughs> a lot of times trying to fight over that same set of kids. So we might want to think about expanding the pipeline, expanding access and opportunity at that first stage. But then when you sort of get a little further along, there's there's other pieces to it, too. Um, we When I was at the Urban Institute, we put together a, a data visualization where basically we showed that at most predominantly white institutions, their schools of ed were more white than the student body. So the the students of color are just not going into the traditional schools of ed. And I've, I've heard anecdotally a few reasons for that, um, all the way from, you know, I'm at college and I know I need to get paid and I know education doesn't really pay, um, all the way to, you know, if I were to go into teaching, I really want to do it um, I really want to do it as a socially, a social justice minded person. And I don't really see that reflected in the curriculum or the faculty of most predominantly white schools of education. And then after that, if you, you know, you can think about um, even when folks do get teaching degrees, sometimes they switch out and go into other more lucrative social service fields um, or they know they have debt to pay back. So they go into other careers. And then once they're in the classroom, um, you know, they're also more likely to turn over or to leave the classroom or to burn out. So kind of wherever you think about it, there's places to intervene that might, um, you know, help us get to a more representative workforce. You know, how do programs like Teach for America and, and you know, other mm-hmm. you know programs that are supposed to funnel people into education, are they having an impact on the lack of diversity? So this is a great question. And, and if you had asked me this like 10 years ago, I'd give you a totally different answer. Wow. So so one thing that we we did find um, in that the the for the, some of that data work I did at Urban was that when black folks do up and end up in the classroom, they are like more likely to come through those alternative route programs. So those are programs where you don't do the traditional education degree, but you can go in the classroom and the structure of them varies, but usually it's something like you're working, uh, you're getting paid, and then you're also working on like your master's in education or something like that. So you're working to get a credential as you're teaching. So usually it doesn't happen that way. Usually with licensing, all that has to be done before you step into the classroom. For programs like Teach for America, and then some states have uh, programs for like career changers, uh, you basically are allowed to pursue your license as you're teaching. So it's... um. It's really meant it, it originally those those types of rules were meant for people to switch careers and come into teaching. So what's happened, though, um, over time is that Teach for America has actually become second to the nation's uh, minority serving institutions in producing teachers of color. So they actually went through a reckoning <laughs> maybe about 10 years ago, I think it was, where they figured out that there were one of the primary um staffing mechanisms for many high needs and hard to staff schools. And their the, the workforce they were providing was dramatically not <laughs> representative of the people they were trying to serve. Um, and so they began to focus more on representation by, by thinking about um, 
by bringing additional schools in and changing the way that they recruited folks because they were uh, not representative <laughs> prior to that. Mm -hmm. And so I know that internally they have gone through a lot of work around what does it now mean that we have uh, evolved into this organization that now provides mostly um, new teachers of color um, into uh, the types of schools that they are trying to serve. But generally it is interesting that over time, um, black folks have kind of switched away from the traditional ed schools and more into these alternative root programs. What I find interesting about Teach for America is um, there are lots of lawyers who did Teach for America first, mm -hmm. and there are lots mm -hmm. of law professors who did mm -hmm. Teach for America first. So it's, you know, the, the people I know who did it were not in it to be long-term educators. Um, they were kind of in it as a stopgap between. Um, so does that have an impact um, with people of color in particular, with, you know, you've got, like, people aren't in it for the long haul. So, you know, you've got some diversity initially, and then you've got them falling off and going to make money, essentially. So this is a good question. And, he, and here I should uh, disclaim, make a disclaimer that I actually did some research work for Teach for America around this. Um, because in some cases, so some people definitely do sort of age out of TFA, and they never were going to stick around. But they do have a significant group of folks who end up in leadership. And they end up in leadership prematurely because they're in places where, um, you know, they're needed. And so um, so one of the things that they wanted me to look at and interview was um, Teach for America alums of color who had ended up in leadership positions because they've kind of default become this pipeline without setting out to be a pipeline. And so I heard a range of things um, in those interviews which was a lot of them did not have plans to stick around, but then eventually did. And I don't know, um, I couldn't say at the top of my head, like what the percentages are, but you're right. Uh, it, it, it was never meant to be a provider of long-term educators. And um, indeed, I know that from another non-TFA related study that I'm working on, this actually is a trend that's happening in education in general, which is that um, the levels of experience are going down over time, particularly among principals. Uh, I don't know if they're burning out or whatever the case may be, but the, the average experience of a principal is going down and it's especially pronounced in high needs and hard to staff schools. So, you know, the, the teacher diversity stuff to me is, is, is one prong of a very, uh, you know, uh, it, it is, um, the teaching profession has a number of challenges, and this is just one of the challenges that are in there. Yeah, but um, but yeah, Teach for America has become this default provider of um, both teachers and leaders, and I, I don't wow. think that's initially set out to do. You know, this is a good time to transition into the policy solutions in your book, and so while your book does a good job of summarizing, you know, what I find most interesting, and it's probably because I am a lawyer, mm -hmm. is how much policy is in it. Um, mm -hmm. I normally would not skim. A book that is that is an ed book, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's so there's so much policy in the book, and I'd mm -hmm. like to transition to that. Sure. Um, so we've got a lot of things that are kind of in the popular press right now that made me want to have you on the show. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we've got the discussions about lack of education. We have Florida having like <laughs> don't say gay bills mm -hmm. combined with like we'll let anyone who is in the military come and teach. Yes. Um, yes. And then we've got, you know, states like Texas that are saying four-day school weeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to assume none of those solutions are things that work to you. Uh, so how do you and your co-authors suggest we overcome 
the polarized political times to improve yeah. education. And we'll just kind of, we've got time to run through almost everything, if not a lot of it. So I'd love to hear your proposals. Yeah. So, so I, here I'll, I'll make another disclaimer, which is that we started this book sort of pre-COVID, right? And pre um, whatever this backlash moment is that we're living in. But the nice thing is that we do provide um, solutions sort of at the local, state and federal level to think about how to push diversity. And so um, there's lots of opportunities to intervene at these different policy levels and um, also sort of at the community level because teacher labor markets are highly localized, right? So states can set policies, district hiring people can have an impact. Um, There's lots of places to intervene. So I think the work will push forward even though we're in this backlash moment. Um, and indeed, there's there's a lot of federal support, but I do have concerns about like what are people actually going to teach when they get in the classroom. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I have concerns about myself because I work in a red state. So, well, well, red state with a blue governor. So who knows? Um, so yeah, so acknowledging all that, I, I still think some of the policy solutions that we put forth are um, are totally doable. So um, so where should we start? So should we start a, start at like um, maybe the level of intervention or? Uh, let's like go from local up. Let's okay. go from like, yeah. Cause then, yeah, let's do local okay. up. Cause if we don't get to federal. Okay. So, so, so teacher labor markets are highly localized. Right. And so there's plenty of opportunity for folks at a district level to intervene, to work on issues of hiring and teacher diversity. So, um, and indeed, most of most of the hiring is done by principals sort of in concert with the district. And so one obvious place to start is for principals just to seek um, stronger, more diverse pools. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that when a principal sets out, they have to hire a teacher of color, but they should pursue a very strong pool. And in the book, we talk about, uh, you know, replicating the Rooney rule from the NFL, um, at the district hiring level. Now, every time I say this, people are like, well, the Rooney rule doesn't work in the NFL. And if you guys don't know what that is, that basically says anytime there's a head coach opening job, they're supposed to interview a person of color with the intent of, you know, diversifying the pool of head coaches now. Has that happened? I don't know. Uh, I think it has not. It is not. not. <laughs> they're doing about it right now. But the thinking, though, is just that to be more intentional about the pool that you're drawing from when you're making hiring decisions. And so that's why we said that teacher quality piece is really important because you you really want to consider like the the skills and the knowledge like uh, from a more holistic standpoint um, because the, the a lot really rests with the principal. Although I know there are districts that have experimented with um, sort of making sure that the pool is very strong sort of for the city and then sending out particular candidates to principals to consider, but a lot does rest in the principal. And so in a sense, you need a, a equity oriented or a principal who has a social justice mindset to make those hiring decisions. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to work at cross purpose, right? So it's not like you want to poach from other schools or um, work to undermine diversity in other places, but we can think very strategically about um how principals do hiring and how we distribute teachers across schools. So going back, one of the things that we find um, in the long run paper 
is really this strong finding about having at least one Black teacher. And so we think that should inform how we think about distributing teachers across a, di a district. And so now granted, teachers work where they want to work, right? Because they're mm -hmm. adult people. But, you know, districts can be very strategic about where they place uh, teachers. So you don't want all your Black teachers to be at the high needs, hard to staff school, right? We want to spread them out to the extent that we can, but also make sure they have support. Um, I've heard of districts providing things like affinity group spaces for Black teachers, um, in particular for teachers who are the only Black teacher at their school. Mm -hmm. So there's ways that I think districts can be very strategic about hiring, and a lot of that does, does focus on the principal and uh, working sort of in concert with the central office to get some of these, these outcomes. Um, at the state level, there's there's lots of actions that policymakers can attend to, too. So so one, again, is are things like pay, licensure, um, thinking about the definition of quality. Usually that's defined at the state level, and that has implications for things like how you're evaluated, um, the type of professional development that you get. And so... Um, the big place, though, for states to sort of intervene is really things around how folks get into the classroom. So so if we go back a little bit, remember when I talked about Brown versus Board, we said that um, licensure tests were one way that we kept Black folks out of the classroom. Now, that actually still is the case. In a lot of places, the, the tests that we use to let teachers in the classroom, um, they themselves have achievement gaps. And there are many black teacher or black teaching potential teacher candidates who, uh, for whatever reason, cannot pass these tests. Now, so my thinking has actually evolved on this over time. Um, so because I used to think, well, gosh, if they can't pass the test, should they even be in the classroom? But I'm not convinced that those tests are related to eventual effectiveness. And if you if we know that there are these outsized impacts of black teachers and we can bring the cut score up a couple of points, I don't think it matters, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so what's interesting in teaching is that a lot of the ways that we select people into the classroom are not related to eventual effectiveness. So it's like you're not really getting the bang for your buck. Like, so for example, um, uh, in, in industrial psychology, they basically call this the diversity validity dilemma. And there's probably something similar in law, too. There's something about your LSAT that predicts whatever. Right. Maybe. Right. I don't well, uh, in theory, I think I think it's exactly the same because, you know, in theory, your LSAT score is supposed to predict your likelihood of passing the bar exam. Mm -hmm. But the bar exam is biased mm -hmm. um, yeah. and they also adjust what the number is what it takes to pass state right. by state and year by year. Mm -hmm. So it's, and, and then there it's proven that people who are not native English speakers and people who are people of color, mm -hmm. because it is so skewed to white culture and yeah. that their LSAT scores do not reflect their performance at all. Um, right. And nor does their bar results impact their ability as a lawyer. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we really should be getting rid of all of it. It's not right. a measure, but yeah. yeah, here we are. Yeah. So, so it's the same thing. Right. So, yeah. So, so like I said, my thinking has evolved on this. So, so this in the industrial psychology, they call it diversity validity dilemma because in some professions, the entrance test does predict performance. So in that case, okay, yeah, keep it. But in teaching these, the, the, the barriers we set into entry, not only do they not predict performance, but then they also keep folks of color out. And so we might, 
you know, instead of adding additional portfolio exams or additional licensure exams or raising the cut score or whatever, it's kind of counterintuitive. I think, like you said, we could get rid of some of that stuff and that would actually help to bring folks in the classroom. And incidentally, that's why a lot of the charters, um, again, you know, whatever you feel about, you know, charters and sort of market-based stuff, they do tend to have more diverse staff because they don't have those licensure requirements. And so that's certainly an area where uh, folks at the state level could intervene. And uh, there's places that are experimenting with stuff like this. I know, uh, I want to say Illinois was doing some work on this because they had some really serious issues around licensure. And then even, I think New York, a group of black and brown teachers sued and they won um, because they actually showed, and I, it's it's an, it's the older version of their licensure t- test. I think it's from the, I don't know, I don't want to not tell, I don't want to say it wrong. It might have been from the 70s and 80s, 80s and 90s. We'll find the article, long-standing disparities for black teachers and they just won. So they they won the lawsuit against the state basically saying like, you know, this kept us out of the classroom. And I think they also provided them with compensation. So we could just let those licensure tests go. Um, you know, I still think you would do your things like background checks, whatever, but the licensure tests, I don't think, um, I don't, I don't think they're worth keeping people out of the classroom. What do the applications look like? You know, you know, one thing that we've done in law school hiring and in law school admissions and even in things internally at law schools like promotion to law review Mm -hmm. um, is add diversity statements, um, put more impact on essay writing and writing ability. You know, we've got some like I believe our undergraduate campus no longer requires standardized tests. You can take it, but they're more looking at the whole application and and they have found one it hasn't changed changed the quality of students um in some ways it's improved things because mm-hmm. we are looking at people more holistically um and the diversity statements in my opinion because it doesn't just have to be racial diversity mm-hmm. um you know it's really adding color and and you know fullness to who it is that we are hiring who it is to we are admitting um in a way that it just makes it makes the classroom better overall. So are there, you know, efforts at the state level or the district level, you know, to throw in a diversity statement or, you know, or, you know, what's your cultural competency training or even like cultural competency certifications? Is there any of that happening in elementary education? So there is and there isn't. So so what people in education love rubrics. (laughs) So we have some very famous rubrics like national standards, local standards, however many standards you want to have. Um, And people have really made good efforts to integrate culturally responsive leadership and pedagogy into those rubrics. Now, the challenge is sometimes, so usually what happens in a state is they'll take like a national rubric and um, modify it, make it relevant for their particular state. And that will drive both your evaluation and your, you know, how you do your professional development, all that stuff. So um, right now, in many places, though, even if a state will have a rubric around culturally responsive pedagogy, it's not reflected in how folks are evaluated. And mm-hmm. so really make need to make that full transition to integrating um, CRP into, you know, when I get evaluated, that is also considered. Now, this is this is a little bit um, counter to the, some of the more recent trends in education, where the focus really was on value add and test scores, which is okay. But 
that's always going to disadvantage people who are seeking to work with high needs and hard to staff populations. Because you're going to, you're not going to be able, well, I shouldn't say you're not going to be able to, but basically you're going to have a penalty um, if you're working with a very hard to staff population. And so that's going to adversely affect many Black teachers. So that's why I said it's really important to um, adjust how people are evaluated. And so adding CRP into that is one way to do that. And it also makes sure that, you know, all all teachers are on the hook for sort of understanding how to work with all different types of students. So yeah, so the, the more holistic piece, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where a principal will have time to, you know, look through many, many applications and interview as many people as we would want. But I think there are things you could do at the state level that might make it a little bit easier, right? So like if there was a, a certificate or, um, if there is a way to uh, to evaluate folks thinking about um, culturally responsive pedagogies and leadership, that would be one way to do it. It's just to bake it into how we do everything else. So yeah, that's a good question. Well, and I just think about how we have, you know, states have certification for GNT and they have certification mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for, you know, teaching special needs. And these yes. things often come with more money. Yes. Um, and, you know, I always say, if you're serious, you'll pay for it exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. As, yeah. The, as the, as the business minded person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You know, and I've said it on my own campus too. Like if we're serious about diversity, mm-hmm. what's their compensation for it? Mm-hmm. If we're serious about cultural competency in the classroom for elementary education, why isn't yeah. there a certification just like GNT right. that would pay people for it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we got to get into federal, which um, I <laughs> yeah. kind of saved that for last because I, I think the strongest power, of the, in my opinion, again, I'm the business person, yeah. but um you know, the strongest power the feds have is the money, right? Mm-hmm. You, de- you declare a school title one and I'll have you explain what title one is, but you yeah. declare a school title one and there's a certain amount of money there. Mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of money if you, if you meet certain other standards. And so, you know, the federal government for constitutional reasons has ways of controlling school districts yeah. with the distribution of funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so first just kind of explain, you know, how the federal government impacts Mm-hmm. You know, every single school in a state, even though we yeah. don't have federal schools, and then mm-hmm. we'll get into like policy. Yes. Okay. This is good. <laughs> so, um, so basically, the the federal, so the 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 constitutional sort of responsibility for schools happens at the state level. Um, but if you get funding from the federal government, you are then subjected to their rules, and then you're also subjected to things like um, making sure you're not breaking the law in terms of civil rights or for special education or whatever the case may be. And so, for schools where they have a majority, or they well, it's, it's counted by school, but for schools with poor students, as defined by family income, they receive funds from um, Title One of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was passed in the 60s, um, sort of in the suite of war and poverty programs. It was really meant to be a compensatory um, education uh, education reform. It's not the war on poverty. Whatever whatever LBJ was doing. <laughs> 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 um, but it was, really, it was really meant to be like a civil rights um, compensatory program, give kids additional opportunities, uh, and over time, it still is at its heart. It still is that, but it also has evolved into a vehicle where the federal government can um, hold schools accountable, and so they can require things like uh, particular growth in test scores. So that was a big focus of No Child Left Behind, uh, where basically they said if you have particular achievement gaps and you don't close those gaps, the federal government can come in. 
So in exchange for you taking our money, we can now hold you accountable on a number of different um, measures. And there's a, so that changed a little bit with the 2015 reauthorization to every student the Every Student Succeeds Act, but the federal government still has this this role to play um, in the basically how schools are run, uh, an outsized role depending on where you sit on the <laughs> political spectrum, right? And so when it comes to teachers, there's a number of ways that the federal government can impact things. So on the the Title One side, um, one of the things that uh, happened under No Child Left Behind was that if you're a Title One school, you must have a certain number of what they called highly qualified teachers. Now, when Obama ran Race to the Top, they changed that language to highly effective teachers. And the definition of effective was that that whole thing about being able to push a kid's test score up or uh, show growth on test scores. And so even though they backed a little bit off that language, there's still lots of money um, sent to schools in terms for things like professional development, to develop evaluation systems, um, and to make sure that the kids who are in the highest needs, hardest to staff schools, um, also have effective educators teaching them. So there's lots of money around that. The other way, though, that the federal government can impact hiring, and in particular teacher diversity, is just straight up through the funding of schools of education. And so um, schools of education receive um, money both in the way of financial aid um, but also lots of money around things like professional development, et cetera, to produce teachers. Um, so sometimes the federal government, for example, might say for special educators, we're going to give you, we're going to run like a block grant or something to make sure that special educators in states are caught up on, you know, the most recent research around disabilities or whatever the case may be. In this instance, though, under this administration, and this is actually very cool. So um, when Kamala was still in the, um, the Democratic primary, she cited one of our studies and she was citing it um, as evidence for why we should invest in HBCUs as engines of teacher preparation. Uh, well, basically reward them for being the engines of teacher preparation that they are. And so the Biden administration has actually put a lot of money into supporting HBCUs because they do produce, and my other minority serving institutions, they produce more than their fair share of teachers of color. And so they might as well get the money to do that. Um, but there's a lot of money, it comes from Title II of the Higher Education Act, where uh, basically the federal government can influence what is taught in schools of education. And so that's a, a, huge, a huge lever outside of Title I. And then they also do other things um, I don't know if they're running them now, but they they do these teacher quality partnership grants. Um, we here at UNC, we actually have a federal grant where we're doing a partnership with Durham Public Schools specifically around um, Latinx teachers because we have huge we have a um, a growing population of of Hispanic and Latino students and no teachers to teach them. Wow! So they're specifically trying to intervene as early as high school to con you know basically to make it lucrative enough, or at least to prevent debt, or make it lucrative enough so that some of those um, Hispanic and Latino students will go into education so that they can serve this growing population. So there's lots of so basically it's money at the <laughs> federal <laughs> government. Um, you know, it's not like defense contracting money or something like that, but there is money um, to be moved around at the federal level to to influence some of this stuff. So. And there are always two things um, that 
shock me and I'm sure shock lay people about education. One, there is no constitutional right to an education. We yes. simply yes, have yes. education because schools or states chose to do it. Mm-hmm. And once they choose to do it, they kind of can't stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there have been Supreme Court decisions about um, which actually Greg Abbott is trying to overturn about whether they have <laughs> to educate, whether states have to educate immigrants and mm-hmm. people who are not um, documented. And there's a case from the 70s that say they did, but they do. Mm-hmm. But um, so there is no constitutional right to education. And, you know, the really, you know, because we have separation of states and federal government, the really only way that the feds can influence things is with money and yeah. and by putting mandates around mm-hmm. the money. Um, and so I have to give that caveat every time because people are like, why can't the feds just come in and tell Florida they can't have a don't say gay bill or because it, it violates the First Amendment? Or why can't they, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. make Texas have school five days a week? And it's like they can't. Okay. Yeah, they cannot. I mean, they mm-hmm. could to Title One schools, um, but they can't otherwise. And yeah. states can refuse federal funds mm-hmm. for schools, just like they can refuse to expand Medicare and things mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to. I think the federal government has to be a little careful of being too heavy handed with sure. what they do with education. Mm-hmm. So with all that in mind, what are your federal proposals? Yeah, so the federal proposal, federal proposals are pretty similar to what they're actually doing. So. Um, basically providing money. Um, I might do something else around incentivizing the flagship institutions to become more diverse um, because they they get a ton of money from their states. And if and a lot of them are responsible for the majority of the the teaching workforce in their in their states. So I would I would incentivize them to diversify. Um, the other big area is student debt. Right. And so so, again, like with any with the rest of this. We see these huge disparities in student debt by race. And so that's also going to influence whether someone ends up in the classroom because you have to be able to pay back your debt. And it's really difficult to do that as a teacher. So the expansion of things like the TEACH grants, which are federal grants that are meant, um, basically they give them to their, can be a part of your federal aid package, but you have to just say you're going to teach for five years or something like that. So Expanding programs like that where you can really um, eliminate students' debt burdens. So um, I have some research with a colleague now. We haven't been able to publish it, but I have research with a colleague at uh, SMU, actually, uh, Dominique Baker, where we basically show that for Black students, they have to use loans to access higher ed. But once it gets over a tipping point, they're less likely to go into teaching, which is perfectly logical. It makes sense, right? You have to be able to pay those loans back. So to the extent we can um, forgive loans or just not just decrease the debt burden to start, that certainly is a way that the federal government can um, can help the, the teacher diversity piece. And I I think in theory, teachers should be able to get the public student, you know, public mm-hmm. student service, whatever it is, the loan forgiveness. But I don't think people access it as much as they should. Um, or well, I will say, you know, I like we can access it in higher ed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you do income based pay, I think it's that even if you are doing income based payments, um, if you have a heavy debt burden, that's still a lot of money. It is. It um, is. And yeah. so, you know, I, I think the problem is and I understand now, you know, everyone has the years of covid and everyone um, but they are also like allowing some of the deferral periods that people have had and hardship yes, periods yes. to count. Mm-hmm. But it was that you had to make income based payments at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's the type of loans. Yes. I've been, yes. you know, I've been learning this from other professors who are having a hard mm-hmm. time. Like they think they're 
qualified for it, but they have the wrong type of loan right. and they yeah. didn't consolidate. So I yeah. think it just, you know, I know a lot of people who've paid like five or six years and thought they were in the right program and they're not. Right. Um, right. And so I think it's a, the, the information, and then the, you know, Trump administration let no one have it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so there was yeah. that. There were four years yeah. of no one having it. So I think it's kind of a flaw in the way the program is designed, mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. really should just, you know, Finnable was on and was like, we should be yeah. waiving everyone's loans. And right. I agree with her. Well, it's so cumbersome. It's like, even, even if you thought about like, okay, we got to check, how are you going to check the income if you can't even, uh, you can't even connect the Department of Ed to the IRS, right? Like there's so, there's so many administrative barriers to doing these things that you just end up on the cancel it side. Just mm-hmm. can- well, and the thing too is it costs more to service loans than right. the government yeah. brings in for revenue. Yeah. And again, as a business person, I'm like, mm-hmm. let's just look at the balance sheet on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If those people would not call you all the time to harass you about your loans, <laughs> then right. they could yeah. waive all of our loans. <laughs> yeah. Like right. Right. it's yeah. it's really silly. The only yeah. person making money off student loans are the servicers, not even the federal government. So right. Right. Um, yeah. it's it's quite silly, um, especially yeah. in the context of this, right? Like particularly for teachers of all people. I mean, who could be the the, you know, the, the most deserving, I guess, even though. That's but even that. doctors or, you know, I would be <laughs> fine with giving it to every legal aid lawyer. Like yeah. there are so many people who are not, you know, the, the teacher profession is a good microcosm of mm-hmm. what it mm-hmm. looks like systemically because you can mm-hmm. study it. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the number of rural doctors, the number of yeah. lawyers and legal, like every profession has this problem yeah. where it lacks diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the debt burden. We all have to go out and be finance people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or we have to be hungry. And that's- right, or, or you don't make it to school in the first place, which right. I think I, when I think about expanding, and this is actually another good point in terms of policy, but when I think about expanding the pipeline for teachers, you know, for example, I know in Rhode Island, they're experimenting with, um, with uh, letting paraprofessionals be trained so that they can become full-fledged K-12 teachers. And that, that's great. That's a diverse population. They've already said they want to be in the classroom. So why not give them the training and opportunity to maybe get a BA along the way and then sort of join the workforce? Um, so I think we can be creative about stuff like that. You know, for example, in the early childhood arena, uh, one of the things we wrote a little short piece about how that's actually a diverse workforce. But if you buy if you came down one day and you said, okay, everybody has to have a BA who's in early childhood, you would lose that diversity. Mm-hmm. And so we want to find some kind of bridge or pathway to let those folks get the training because they're already there in the classroom, right? And so that that way you can think a little, be a little bit more creative about expanding that pipeline for sure. Have y'all looked at all at these states that have um, community college for free and whether that has had an impact on the pipeline? Because I would imagine if you can get two of your four years paid mm-hmm. for, um, then maybe that allows some more access. Mm-hmm. I have not specifically, but I know, for example, in Tennessee, for sure, somebody will look at it. Well, I, one of my friends is um, is a professor who he he writes faster than I'm able to keep up with. <laughs> um, but for sure, I'm sure somebody at Vandy or somebody has th- at least thought about this idea. But yeah, so in places like Tennessee... Um, when you do get those first two years free, I'm for sure that has to have an impact. Now, I don't know if it specifically has had an impact on diversity, um, but you can also think about places like Virginia, where 
if you're able to get that associates by the time you finish high school, that's also going to decrease your debt burden. I think Texas has a program like that. So yeah. there's lots of um, there's lots of opportunities to to be creative with some of this stuff. All right. So in our closing minutes, I would love for you to talk about what we can do in the short term. I always like to end on something positive um, when we talk about these things. So what are some things that we can do in the short term, you know, as citizens or that people can do at the, at, you know, in the state and federal and local level, you know, in the short term to, to improve what's happening? Yes. So the good news is there's lots of organizations that are working on this. And so I always believe in supporting people who are doing the work. So there's an organization out of Philly called Center on Black Educators. You can always, you know, donate to them, look them up, support them. And there's lots of grassroots organizations. Um, I'm on the board of an organization called Profound Gentlemen. They're out of Charlotte, where they specifically focus on men of color in the classroom. They could always use your support. Um, and also, you know, getting active in your school board and getting active in local politics, because that's where a lot of these decisions are made. And that's where a lot of these uh, culture wars are being fought. But people don't know they can be active at the school board level. So just trying to get get active, support the organizations that are doing the work and, you know, think about how you want to interact with your local school board, because it's going down. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it is. It is. And I didn't have time. I was like, I need to ask her about homeschool, but that'll be next time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely next time. Now, I also like to give folks a minute to promote themselves. Okay. So uh, we already talked about the name of the book. It is mm -hmm. on Amazon. It is mm -hmm. Teacher Diversity and Student Success, Why Racial Representation Matters in the Classroom. Mm -hmm. And unlike our law school books, it's only like $35 on Amazon. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive. Um, and so, you know, I may actually incorporate some of it into my teaching in the law mm -hmm. school. Um, I would encourage other educators mm -hmm. of all variety to kind of look at it because some of the just pedagogical strategies and other strategies that are in the book, I think, translate to all levels mm -hmm. of education. And then do you have anything else to promote before we close out? Just just cite my research. You can find me on Google Scholar. Uh, just just look me up and cite me. That's that's really all I care about right now. <laughs> yes, cite black women. She's pre tenure. Yeah, um, pre -tenure. and don't steal her work. Cite her work. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like remember that you got the idea from Constance. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the show, and thank you all for tuning in to Get in Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and on the Voice America webpage. And we also have a YouTube channel where we upload these videos. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or to reach out to me on social media. I'm at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you for listening. And thank you again, Constance, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.